Good morning. Such a joy to be invited to share a message from God's Word with you this morning. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, River West became our church home as a family 18 years ago. My husband and I moved to Lake Oswego 33 years ago, and we found this worshiping community when our boys were just 9 and 14, <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's, I remember we were searching for a church in our community where our sons, who were in the Lake Oswego School District, could find like-minded friends in school, and also that Bob and I could find a place to invest our lives in a community of people who authentically had faith and loved Jesus. And it's just, it's hard to believe. It's been almost two decades, and now our boys are 29 and 34. Time goes by so fast. Today we're continuing in our series in Luke chapter 20, and uh, as I was reflecting this week on the power struggles that are going on in this chapter between uh, the religious leaders against Jesus, I was reminded in a moment in my younger son Spencer's life when he was about five years old. He was out in the neighborhood, he'd been playing all day with his friends, and it was time for him to come in to dinner, so I called him to come in for dinner. And reluctantly, he came in, and I remember coming to the front door, and uh, I met him. He came through the front door. I met him in the foyer, and I told him, probably a little sternly, that it was time for him to go upstairs and wash his hands for dinner. And I remember he just planted his feet, put his hands on his hips, clenched his jaw, squinted his eyes, looked up at me, and said, who made you the boss of me? <laughs> he, was, he was dead serious. And I just, I couldn't ha help but just laugh inside because I was thinking, well, <clears throat> first of all, I brought you into this world. I've cared for you every single day of your life. You've had food and shelter and comfort and love because of me. And uh, by the way, I'm twice as big as you are. So I'm pretty sure God made me the boss of you. But then, wait a minute. Isn't that somehow what we say to God? Don't we sometimes say to God, who made you the boss of me? You know, have you ever challenged God's word or God's authority in your life? Have you ever stood your ground against him and cried out those words in sort of a defiant spirit? Certainly, this is the question that our postmodern culture has been screaming ever since we moved away from Christian morals and we uh, have denied a belief in the absolute truth of God's word. In our postmodern Christian, our postmodern post-Christian culture, where where people literally say, "Well, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me." But one thing we can say is true: is we don't believe that God's word is true. And of course, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Because it all began in the Garden of Eden when the serpent tempted Eve to doubt God's word. And Adam and Eve became the boss of their own decisions by eating the one thing that God said they couldn't have. So this power struggle is as old as time, and this is why the religious leaders are challenging Jesus in Luke chapter 20. Now, you might remember this kind of all began back in Luke chapter 19, after Jesus entered into Jerusalem, humbly riding on the back of a donkey. It's the triumphal entry that we looked at a few weeks ago. 
And at that time, his followers began openly worshiping him for the first time, publicly worshiping him. You might remember that they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were saying peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were so hopeful that now, now that Jesus was coming to reign as king over Israel, that it would put an end to the oppressive Roman government that was lording over them. They thought, oh, finally, God has sent us help and answer to our prayers. They thought, finally, Jesus was coming to set them free from this, this oppressive regime that Caesar was ruling over. But as Jesus entered the city that day, he actually didn't really look much like a proud ruler. He was riding on this donkey coming down the street. He was not actually coming to divide and conquer with fists of strength that they hoped he might. Instead, do you remember what he did? He wept over the spiritual ignorance of the city of Jerusalem. He then went into the temple and he cleared it of all the thieves and he restored it as a place of teaching and worship. And then he began to teach with this God-like authority. And in that moment, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, the religious leaders, they knew in that moment that their power and authority was being threatened, that they were in danger of losing their authority over the Jewish people. And that's when they determined to kill him. Well, the best way they thought that they might do that was to trap him into saying something that then they could openly arrest him for, and then they could accuse him of insurrection or they could accuse him of treason. So back in the beginning of Luke 20, verse two, they questioned him about his authority. So they said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things and who is it that gave you this authority? And then you might remember Jesus responded to their question with a question. So he asked them a question about John the Baptist. And Pastor Adam preached about that a couple of weeks ago. And then he told them a parable about a vineyard. And Pastor Eric preached about that last week. And now we find that they are seeking to trap him with a political question. And so our text for today is Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. So please grab your Bibles and you can follow along with me as I read our passage. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. <clears throat> we're going to look at this passage in three parts today. Uh, first, we're going to look at deception. We're going to see that the religious leaders plot to deceive Jesus. We we'll see that in verses 20 through 22. Then we're going to look at discernment. We're going to see how Jesus discerns their motives to trap him in 23 and 24. 
And then lastly, we're going to look at declaration. So we're going to see that Jesus declares his authority over what is his. Will you bow your heads and pray with me for just a moment? Father, we ask you right now, will you please open our ears to hear from your Holy Spirit this morning? Will you please open my mouth to speak only the words that you have ordained for me to say today? And would you please, by your Spirit, show us what it means when we agree to give to you what belongs to you? Teach us that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to jump in to looking at deception. As we're looking at Luke 20, remember that everything that takes place in Luke 20 happens in a single day. And so this is now happening just a few days before Jesus is going to be arrested, beaten, and crucified. So the, we sense the intensity building here as the religious leaders are growing more and more fervent in their desire to destroy Jesus, and they're also growing more afraid of the people. And if we look back at verse 19, it kind of sets the stage for what's happening. Verse 19 says, the, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable, the parable that we looked at last week, they perceived that they had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So the religious leaders, they decided that trickery might be the best tactic for approaching Jesus. They would send men to cozy up to him with flattery, and then they, they thought they could deceive him into saying something that he would then be arrested for. Now, because Jesus had grown so much at this point in popularity with the people, and because his teaching in the temple was with such authority, the religious leaders knew that they weren't going to be able to, to persecute him now on religious grounds because they knew the people would turn against them. And they're the religious leaders. But they thought possibly if they could get the Romans to persecute him. They thought, you know, if they, they could just get him to say something that would offend the government, then, the Ro then they could hand him over to the Romans, and then the Romans would be able to put him to death for treason. That's what they wanted. So verse 20 says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So these spies are like double agents, and they're feigning allegiance to his teaching, and they're trying to trip him up with a question that would condemn him no matter how he answered it. If we look over to the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 12, verse 13, the same story tells us that these men were Pharisees and Herodians, and that they were specifically trying to trap him in his talk What's so interesting is that these two groups of men, they were usually fighting against each other. They were at opposite spectrums of political agendas, and normally they were completely contentious with each other. But now we see they're bonding together in their common enemy of Jesus. Verse 21 says, So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? This question is really about paying taxes. 
And the Romans were burdening the Jews with such heavy taxation. At this point in time, the Jews were paying 30 to 40% of their income in taxes. And in particular, there was this poll tax, is what it was called. And a poll tax was, a, was paid as a tribute to a foreign ruler. And so this tax actually had to be paid with a certain kind of a coin that was specifically stamped with the image of Tiberius Caesar, who was the, the ruler. And it was inscribed with words underneath that said, that called him a son of God. So, on top of the civil, civic taxes they have to pay and the religious taxes they have to pay, and they're already paying all of these taxes. Now they're actually being asked to make an offering to a foreign god. This was like, like, like almost like an act of worship, and it was very controversial for the Jews. And to them, it represented yet another power move by the Roman government to keep them in bondage to pagan idolaters. So the question that they've asked them is actually really brilliant. It's really brilliant on their part. Because if Jesus supports paying taxes to Rome, then the Jews are going to question his allegiance to God. They're going to question his allegiance to God's people. But if Jesus denounces the tax, it's going to signify a rebellion against Rome. Then he's going to be guilty of a crime that's punishable by death. Isn't it interesting that it's tax season right now? <laughs> it's tax season. Tax season's just a few weeks ahead. And so maybe you're thinking about taxes. It seems like taxes are something that are always a topic of controversy. You know, most people feel that they pay too much in taxes. Anybody feel like you pay too much in taxes? Property taxes. Oh my goodness, I pay too much in property taxes. We feel that way, right? Taxes are often a, a subject of, of debate, of controversy, of, of even dishonesty. Many people feel a great temptation to cheat on their taxes. Did you know that in 1987, a simple change in the tax rule caused 7 million children to disappear in America? It started back in the early 1980s where an IRS um, research officer dis discovered that in the process of doing random audits, he discovered that there were, it was exposing a lot of mistakes in the kinds of children that people claimed on their tax returns. Now, he said some of the mistakes were somewhat just oversights, honest, things that had happened, but many of them were actually quite comically fraudulent, like the child named Fluffy, who was recorded as a tax deduction and ended up being a pet. And so he decided that one way that he could clear up the mess, he proposed a law that required that when uh, somebody filed a tax return for a dependent, they had to include the social security number. And so that actually became a law. In 1987, it became required that if you were filing a tax return and claiming a dependent, you had to put down your dependent's social security number. That year, 7 million dependents, children, vanished off the tax rolls and the government pocketed an extra $3 billion. <laughs> Taxes, right? Taxes are always a point of contention between us and the government. What can we learn from these first couple verses? Here's the truth I see. It's impossible to deceive Jesus. It's impossible to deceive Jesus. God knows our hearts. God knows our motives. 
God knows our intentions. He knows when we approach him with a sincere question, and he knows when we're seeking to challenge his authority in our lives. He knows when we're being honest, and he knows when we're being dishonest. There are no secrets between us and God. Not that we don't try to keep them, because we do, but he sees and knows everything. We cannot keep secrets from him. Psalm 139, verses 2 and 4 remind us of this. He says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Before a word is even on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. So no matter what you and I say or do, God sees our innermost being and he knows us better than we know ourselves. 1 John 3.20 says, For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Mark 4.22, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. It's impossible to deceive Jesus. The religious leaders, they were trying to, to trap him in this question, but as we'll see in just a moment, he could see right through them because nothing is hidden from him. Let me ask you, let me ask myself, what are we hoping that God doesn't see about our lives? What are we trying to keep in secret? What are we hoping is just tucked out of his view? Or what are we compartmentalizing in a, a completely different realm from the mainstream of our life and just hoping that we'll deal with that later, Lord? I don't want you to look at that right now. Don't call me to deal with that yet. There's nothing that he doesn't see and nothing that he doesn't know. Jesus knows it all. And I love that when we bring him our, our sincere questions and our true struggles, he meets us with his love and grace. But the religious leaders were not looking for true answers from Jesus. They only wanted to trap him and kill him. Let's look at discernment in the next verse. Verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So Jesus not only, he not only discerns their deviousness, but then he, he raises them a question. He answers their question by raising them a question by asking them to produce a denarius out of their pockets. Now, there were all kinds of coins circulating in this day. A denarius wasn't the only kind of coin, but a denarius was very particularly used as a propaganda for Caesar. It was very, you can see a picture of what it looked like there. Um, the denarius promoted Caesar as a sovereign being. On the one side was his picture, and on the other side, it proclaimed him as son of the divine Augustus. Now, ironically, they could pull a denarius out of their pockets, and that was just proof that they were living under this Roman idolatrous system. They were part of the world, right? They're living under the system. They've got the denarius right in their pocket. The, the coin itself is used as a marketing tool to promote Caesar as a divine and sovereign being. They're obviously living under the world system, though they're pretending to be quite pious in their flattery of Jesus's teaching. But by asking them to produce this coin, Jesus has clearly exposed them as hypocrites for bringing graven images of a pagan god into the courts of the holy temple where Jesus has been teaching all day long. You know, it was a violation of the Ten Commandments. Looking back at Exodus 20, 
where the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. So Jesus has cleverly exposed the religious spies for their duplicity. They thought they could trap him, but instead Jesus has trapped them by revealing their double standards. Okay, I want you to imagine this for just a moment. They've come into the temple. These men are religious leaders. They know scripture. They are the the religious stewards of the Jewish people. They've come with a sense of piety in their attitudes. They've come into this holy place, and yet in their pockets, they have pocket idols. They have coins that proclaim that Caesar is like a god. And yet they're standing before their long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, completely blinded to his deity because of the murderous intent of their heart to kill him. What a moment that was. I want to share truth with you. It's possible to confuse church and state. It's possible to confuse church and state. In in other words, it's possible to mix up the the ideologies of culture with the ideals of God. It's possible to mix up the ideologies of culture with the ideals of God. Let that sit for a moment. Thursday, March 11th, was the one-year anniversary of the announcement of the global pandemic just a few days ago. I remember thinking when the news first hit that there was this virus in China, I was thinking, well, yeah, a virus is never going to come to Lake Oswego, Oregon from China, nevertheless become a worldwide pandemic. I mean, China's had many viruses in the past. And then it was like a day later that a man in Lake Oswego was diagnosed with COVID and was really, really sick. And we went instantly into our own community right here, being kind of at the epicenter of one of the first breakouts in the United States of of a COVID. And I don't think any of us could have imagined that what began as two weeks of a stay-at-home order was going to turn into over a year of setbacks and shutdowns. But I I believe that God has really used this time to give us an opportunity to reflect on our lives and to reprioritize. I mean, we've had a chance to to identify some of our, our misplaced passions, or let's call them idols. We've had an opportunity to evaluate our pace of life before God and and to confront our addiction to busyness and productivity. And we've had to ask ourselves some really hard questions. Questions about who is God? Questions about who are we? Questions about what's going on in our world? And we've also been saturated with a lot of culturally charged ideologies regarding racial relations, social injustices, and political agendas. In a year that could have been incredibly bonding for our communities to come together in love and support, it's been a year that's been more characterized by divisiveness, criticism, and anger. Why is that? What happened? 
I think it's because too often we've been standing in the house of God with a denarius in our pocket. We've been straddling church and culture. You know, we want to be faithful followers of Jesus, of course, but we bring our cultural ideologies into his temple and we bicker over things that don't belong in the church. Yes, God ordained human government. Proverbs 8.15, God says, By me kings reign and rulers declare what is just. Daniel 2.21 says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and acknowledges knowledge to those who have understanding. It's important for societies to have order and accountability and leadership and protection and care. It's good for us to pay taxes for what our government provides for us. Without any government, there's total anarchy. And that kind of chaos is harder on its citizens than even a poorly run or a bad government. But while the government is important to the functioning of society, God loves his church. He loves his church. The church is his bride. The church is his people on earth. It's his light into this dark world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happens in the church transcends everything that happens in human government. Governments come and go, leaders rise and fall, but the church is God's eternal workmanship on earth. We must be careful not to bring our cultural ideologies into the church. The church should look so vastly different than the rest of the world. It should look so different in how we love God and how we love each other that people are literally running into our doors to see what the heck is happening in here. The church is supposed to be supernatural because Jesus Christ is the pastor of the church universal. The church at large, he is the senior pastor and he doesn't affiliate with any political persuasion. Let me ask you, do you have a denarius in your pocket? You know what I mean? Are you bringing your political agenda into the house of God? Now you can be honest because we all do it. We all do it. We live in the world. We all do it whether we realize it or not. We all come in with all kinds of things swirling in our mind. But let's just ask God together if he'll help us just lay it down at the altar if he'll help us just to have hearts that will worship him alone. That's what Jesus declared in his response to the political spies in these closing verses. Declaration, verse 25. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now you might be thinking, but wait, doesn't everything belong to God? Yeah, everything does belong to God. God has made the world and everything in it, those men certainly would have known that. They would have known their scriptures. He's the one who raises up and takes down leaders. He's the one who is sovereign over everything that he has made. He's the one that sustains everything by the power of his word. Is there anything that belongs to Caesar that doesn't first belong to God? Of course not. It all belongs to God. So Jesus goes on to make two things very clear. First, he says, it's okay to pay your, pay your taxes to the government. It's okay. Government has actually a very important role in society. Because Caesar's face was stamped on that coin, it belongs to him. So Jesus says, give it back to him. Everything that belongs to Caesar belongs to God anyway. 
Isn't it the same true for our money? Well, whose face is on our money? All kinds of different people. People's faces that represent the history of America. And we are recipients of so many wonderful governmental services. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed driving to, to church today on a paved road. That was really nice. I really uh, appreciate that if I get in trouble, I can call the police and they'll come help me. I am thankful for public libraries. I'm grateful for courts that maintain a sense of justice regarding our laws. I'm thankful for prisons that keep unsafe people out of society. I'm grateful for our military that gives, protects us from foreign invaders or from acts of terrorism. We live in a really great country and it's okay to pay taxes to our government. Jesus is saying, give your money to the, fa to the one whose face is on your money, right? He's basically, that's not what's most important. That's what he's saying. Look, that's not what's most important. What's most important is give to God what belongs to God. Give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? You do. I do. You and I have been stamped with the image of God. We're the ones who've been, been made in God's very image. Genesis 1.27 tells that. It's so, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And when we come to faith in Jesus, then God begins the work in our hearts to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ, through the process of sanctification. Just as John was telling us earlier, he makes new out of old. He makes us, gives us a new life in Christ. Colossians 3.10 says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of, his, of the creator. So God has stamped the image of himself on us and I think he has done that so that we will just clearly recognize him as our heavenly father. We will know that he is our heavenly father. What then shall we give to God? Well, we should give him our whole selves. We should give him our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We should give him our whole self. And why? Because he's God. In the River Bible Study, we've been studying the Psalms this year, and a couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 95, which was written by David. And it's such a great reminder of who God is and why we should give our whole selves to him. Let me read you verses three through seven. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So in a world where God has made everything, everything on this earth that he has made, everything in the universe above he has made, every star, sun, planet, universe after universe, of all the things that he has made, only you and I bear his divine image. Isn't that astounding? Only we bear his divine image. It's only reasonable then that we would give our whole selves to our divine maker. Verse 26 and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. 
They were just silent. They were literally dumbstruck. They could think of nothing to say. They were marveling at his brilliance. They couldn't find a single word to speak. I think they thought they had him trapped. And in that moment, he trapped them in their unbelief. So what can we learn? We must give to God what belongs to God, ourselves. We must give to God what belongs to God. We must give him ourselves. Have you given yourself to Jesus Christ? Jesus is the one, Scripture tells us, who actually holds all authority over heaven and earth. And I think these men knew in that moment what kind of authority he was speaking from. And he has authority. John tells us this in verses 3 and 4. It says, all things were made through him, Jesus. Without him, Jesus was not anything that was made. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he has all authority. He is our maker, our sustainer, and our savior. He's the one who laid down his life on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be forgiven and restored and renewed into a relationship with God himself through Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. And all we have to do is just agree. We have to agree that it is so. We have to take our hands off our hips, stop saying, who made you the boss of me? And just say, yes, Lord, it is so. I believe it. If you have received Jesus as your savior, let me ask you another question. Does he have your whole self? Does he have your whole self? Or is there an area of your life where you're holding back from fully surrendering to him? Is there a power struggle going on with you and him for authority? You know, are you in some corner of your heart refusing to let him be the boss of you? Where is it where you're still struggling to surrender your whole self to him, to trust him in the hardest places of your life, to surrender all? What would it look like for you to be all in with Jesus today, right now, to be all in, to give him every part of who you are and to worship him truly from a place of faith and dependence and surrender and belief? As the worship team is going to come back up, I want to just leave you with a final challenge today. And I'm including myself. Let's us Give to God what belongs to God. Let's give him our whole selves. Let's trust him. And let's give him our whole selves as an expression of worship and surrender and faith. Will you stand? Let me pray as we get ready to worship. Father, we just come before you in great humility right now because we can see the many ways in which um, we have been distracted by things or we have been um, not pure in our heart to worship you, to trust you, to bring to you every corner of our life and to surrender to you 
You have made us in your image. You are our Father in heaven. You are our divine maker. You are our Savior who laid down your life for us. Oh Lord, of course we belong to you. I pray right now that for any ways in which we're holding back, that we would surrender it all to you and that we, our lives would proclaim by the testimony of our words and our actions that truly Jesus is better than anything else. And we ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.